0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the beautiful weather you have given us so far today. More than that, we thank you for you. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't matter what is going on in this world. It doesn't matter what is going on in our own heads and own hearts. That doesn't change the fact that you are who you are. You are the way, the truth, and the life. None of us can have any restoration to the Father except through the Son. And and there is only one way to do that. That is to accept him as Savior and King. Lord, we thank you for your word that it is always timeless. It is always relevant and it is always true. We don't need to manipulate it to to make it fit some kind of worldview. We can just take it as it is, as the plain and clear word of God that is living and active and cuts us to the quick and lays bare all of who we are before you. And yet, you love us anyway. Thank you for saving us, for justifying us, for giving us the eternal hope of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1960, a man named... Uh, Now, I just love this name. Chris Christofferson, sounds made up, but it's not. Chris Christofferson graduated from Oxford University with a master's degree in literature. After Christofferson joined and was honorably discharged from the army shortly after, he received an offer to teach literature at West Point Academy. Shockingly, Christofferson rejected the offer and instead went to Nashville to pursue his true passion, which was songwriting. His parents certainly did not support their son's decision and thought he was throwing his whole life away. Instead, Christofferson became wildly successful for his songwriting, and while you might not recognize his name, you would certainly recognize some of the songs he wrote for stars such as Johnny Cash, Gladys Knight and the Pips, and Elvis Presley. A young man's working-class family thought his interest in filmmaking was only a phase, not to be taken seriously at all. When this young man applied for and was accepted to the film school at the University of Southern California, he didn't tell his parents right away. When he finally did, the response was, Don't you see where you come from? You can't be a movie director. The young man used that statement as fuel, and Robert Zemeckis went on to direct blockbuster films such as Back to the Future and Forrest Gump. And we've all heard of the famous nurse, Florence Nightingale, who was highly influential in bettering the conditions of care at hospitals and for wounded soldiers during the Crimean War. In fact, when the British War Secretary during the Crimean War asked Nightingale to lead a group of volunteer nurses to help wounded soldiers, the medical facility she was met with was atrocious. Feces covering the floor, rats running rampant, Very few clean linens and a 42% mortality rate of soldiers in care there. With Nightingale's stringent hygiene standards, she had managed to get that mortality rate down to a scant 2%. But Nightingale was raised in a wealthy British family. Her father was a high society landowner and her mother a respected socialite. In those days, nursing was considered only for the uneducated and poor. And so when Nightingale expressed to her parents that she felt God was calling her to be a nurse, her parents flatly forbade her from pursuing it. However, Nightingale convinced that it was God who wanted her to do it, refused a marriage proposal, and audaciously entered nursing school at age 30. Her parents finally came around when they saw all the good Nightingale was accomplishing in the nursing sector. Not only her hygiene improvements, but also developing better nursing practices and nursing education. In fact, only a few years after her graduation from nursing school, Nightingale had already become the superintendent of a London-based women's hospital. In all of these examples, these people who ended up becoming very successful were misunderstood and even denounced by their own family members to pursue what they knew their life's calling was. In our passage today, in continuation of this theme of opposition in Jesus' third year of earthly ministry, we turn now to Jesus' own family. Similar to our opening illustrations, Jesus' earthly family had their expectations and ideas of what Jesus should be doing with his life. And Jesus knew his life's calling was entirely and oppositely different from their desires. So... What does this mean in our understanding of Jesus and how does that affect our lives now? As we open up chapter 7, like I just referenced, we continue in this year of opposition of Jesus' earthly ministry. This opposition will will just keep ramping up more and more until the next Passover when he is nailed to a cross as the Passover sacrifice for all time. We saw this opposition start when the gigantic crowd Jesus miraculously fed with just five loaves and two fish continue in his Galilee ministry, when a lot of them who had been following him in Galilee turned around and stopped having anything to do with him and today we'll see the opposition spreading to his own family members. Which in turn will erupt with arguments surrounding with Jesus at a feast in Jerusalem. It's interesting to note here that the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, cover a wide range of the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. That is the year of preparation, the year of popularity, and the year of opposition. But the fourth Gospel of John mostly focuses on the year of opposition. In fact, as I've referenced before, John completely bypasses pretty much the entire second year of popularity of Jesus' ministry. Which the other three Gospels describe a lot more in detail. All of which, if you line everything up with the four Gospels, take place between John 5 and John 6. Why is that? Why does the Apostle John focus most of his gospel, 14 chapters out of the 21 chapters of his gospel, on Jesus' third year of opposition? Well, remember why John felt the need through the moving of the Holy Spirit to write this fourth gospel in the first place. I don't know if you knew this or not before now, but this is the only gospel written after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. At that point, it was highly dangerous to follow after someone who claimed to be the Messiah in open defiance of Roman imperialism. There was no friendly friendship from the Roman Empire, nor its government. Nero had been systematically persecuting and killing Christians since 64 A.D., And the early Christians, Jewish brothers and sisters, held no esteem for them either. In fact, by the time John wrote this gospel, the Jewish community in the Roman Empire wanted to distance themselves from this strange sect of Judaism, which claimed a ragamuffin from Nazareth was the Messiah, that they included a section in in an everyday said prayer cursing Christians. The early church was facing persecution from all sides, both from their Gentile and Jewish relations. And so about 20 years after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and no one wanted to see Christianity thrive by any means and rather did everything they could to kill it off, John, the last remaining apostle of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit saw the need for and decided to write his own gospel. A major reason being to focus on the opposition and persecution Jesus faced all the way up through the cross. And ending with the most thorough description of Jesus's post-resurrection experiences. All of which to bolster the early church's faith and boldness to keep going and portraying Jesus to the world that wanted to completely destroy them. So that's why we see the many facets of opposition that Jesus faced, all to show his followers 70 years later that he went through all the same experiences of misunderstanding and opposition. Today, what we're going to see is that this is even seen as far as Jesus' own brothers. The same guys who he spent his childhood with and was raised with. So with all of that in mind, let's turn to this morning's passage. We're starting John chapter 7 this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 7. It's in the New Testament. You can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. Or just keep flipping forward in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John till you hit it. Or look this up on uh, your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. There should also be a Bible located in the pew in front of you. I want all of us to see this. So if you can, uh, turn your Bibles uh, to find this. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 2, we read this. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Right off the bat, we can completely understand that while a lot of Jesus' disciples left following him recently, Galilee was still not anywhere the hotbed of desire to kill him as Jerusalem in Judea was. Firstly, a whole other ruler ruled over Galilee, Herod Antipas. Whereas Judea and its city of Jerusalem was ruled directly by Roman governor Pontius Pilate. The Passover that marked the start of Jesus' third year of ministry was when he healed the man who hadn't been able to walk for 40 years at the pool of Bethesda at the beginning of chapter 5. Now, verse 2 that we just read says we're coming up on the next of the... Three, or one of the next of the three required feasts for every adult Jewish male to go to Jerusalem to bring the required offerings and sacrifices to the temple. What is this called? This is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, you might not have heard much of this before, but it was to commemorate when the Israelites camped out in tents in the wilderness and for them to meditate on God providing for them all that time. That was the whole point of this required feast. We know from the Old Testament that the first required feast, Passover, was always supposed to happen around our calendar months of March or April since it was based on the first full moon of the spring equinox. The second required feast, Pentecost, always happened 50 days, hence the name Penta. Pentecost happened 50 days after Passover. And the third required feast, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, happened after the harvest, usually in September or October. By this time rendering, we're about six months at this point into Jesus' third and final year of ministry. There are only about six to seven months now before Jesus is nailed to the cross on the following Passover. We've perhaps heard of the other two required feasts, Passover and Pentecost, Passover to commemorate God freeing his people from Egypt and sparing them from the 10th plague of death only by way of the covering of the Passover lamb's blood. And Pentecost to commemorate Thanksgiving to God for God's provision. Jesus fulfilled the purpose of Passover with his blood spilled on Passover around 30 AD in order to cover those who would accept it for themselves and spare them from God's judgment of the second death. And Jesus fulfilled the purpose of Pentecost when he poured out the Holy Spirit on the 120 believers gathered in Jerusalem. Interestingly, as one biblical scholar pointed out, The aspect of the peace offering originally given by the Israelites on Pentecost emphasized peace with God. One of the major roles of the Holy Spirit, also referred to as the what? The comforter who brought proven peace with God based only on Jesus' death and resurrection and peace from God by way of it being a fruit of the Spirit. Now, we have the Feast of Tabernacles approaching in Jerusalem. This is the only feast in Mosaic law that has not been fulfilled yet. And the reason why is it's connected to Messianic age events, end times events. The Feast of Tabernacles, like I referenced was to remind the Jewish people when they conquered Canaan and established themselves there of the temporary hardship of their wilderness wanderings and complete reliance upon God's faithfulness towards them. Not only that, but there is another incredibly meaningful aspect and purpose of this feast, which was fleshed out by the Old Testament prophets who came before Jesus. And this is what I just referenced. This prophetic understanding will help us to understand why Jesus responds to his brothers the way he does in this morning's passage. Over time, Isaiah and Micah used imagery from the Feast of Tabernacles to give prophetic expectation of the Lord himself reigning over the earth. And specifically, the prophet Zechariah declared that the Feast of Tabernacles would still be celebrated during the Messianic Kingdom or when God, as Jesus, would physically reign over the earth for a thousand years. Zechariah says, then it will come about that any who are left of the nations that came up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king. Physically, in person, the Lord of armies and to celebrate the feast of booths. Well there we see it plainly referenced there. Zechariah was written about 500 years before the birth and ministry of Jesus. So suffice it to say, most people, 500 years before this point, connected the Feast of Tabernacles with the prophesied Messianic Kingdom. And when I say most people, that absolutely includes Jesus' brothers. That's what brings us to verses 3 through 5. Therefore, his brothers said to him, "'Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing.' For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, if you haven't fallen asleep yet, All my background about the Feast of Tabernacles, this is what connects uh, to our passage this morning. Knowing this background of the Feast of Tabernacles, we can see that Jesus' brothers were just as misguided as the crowd of 20,000 that Jesus had to disperse shortly before this. Just like with the first required feast to be in Jerusalem, Passover, and the second required feast to be in Jerusalem Pentecost the third required feast needed to be in Jerusalem created a situation in which Jerusalem was always packed with people as noted by one biblical scholar Jesus had four half-brothers we get their names from Matthew and Mark when we read then they scoffed he's just the carpenter's son and we know Mary his mother and his brothers James Joseph Simon and Judas. Verse 5 of our passage this morning points out that none of them, none of these four believed in Jesus as the Messiah and Savior at this point, at least to the point of salvation and him being God himself. It's not until after Jesus's resurrection and ascension that his brothers do come to put their faith in him for their salvation. Acts 1 tells us they all met together He's the 120 when the Holy Spirit is given. And we're constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and, well, lo and behold, here we are, the brothers of Jesus. This is after his death, resurrection, and ascension, they finally put their faith in him. Of these brothers, the next oldest, since Jesus was technically Mary's Firstborn James would go on to be a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church before 70 AD. And he would go on to write the New Testament book of the letter of James. And another brother, presumably the youngest, named Jude or Judas here, would go on to write the New Testament book of the letter of Jude. But at this point in their lives, in our passage this morning, Jesus' half-brothers only see him at best as the messianic figure that the rest of the people saw when they wanted to forcibly make him king. Jesus' half-brothers are looking at Jesus, keeping his distance from the capital city of Jerusalem, and living in seeming obscurity in Galilee, and think and vocalize to their half-brother, what are you thinking? If you really want to get your name out there, and actually get the masses to follow you as king, and create your messianic movement, you have to go to where all the action is. You have to go to Jerusalem. And what better time to go to Jerusalem than the festival that everyone already connects the prophesied messianic kingdom to? Do we see now how all this background connects to everything here? In theory and in thinking about things in a human way, everything Jesus' brothers are saying to him in a human aspect makes complete sense, doesn't it? Even today, if you want people to know your name, you go to the places you need to go and meet the people you need to meet and do the things you need to do in order to do that. From politicians to aspiring actors to music artists. What Jesus' brothers were not thinking about was that a bunch of people in Jerusalem were waiting there to assassinate their half-brother. Especially if he started openly declaring and displaying himself as the Messiah at the Feast of Tabernacles. And now we can understand what Jesus is getting at with his response to them. Verse 6. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here but your time is always opportune. As noted by one biblical scholar, Jesus is clearly talking about his impending death here. His brothers could go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles at any time, any time they wanted to, for every time was opportune for them to go there for the eight-day feast. Jesus had to be a lot more careful. Jesus knew that as soon as he did clearly declare himself as the Messiah, for example, riding a donkey into Jerusalem as a clear fulfillment of Zechariah's other messianic prophecy, it would immediately lead to his death. And that's what we see happening. And according to his father's plan, and it being only September or October at this point, it wasn't time for that yet. In fact, in John 17, 1, we have when Jesus does confirm that it is time. During his last Passover celebration with his disciples, when he institutes the Lord's Supper and establishes the immediately upcoming new covenant in his blood, he says in his prayer, after saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The time is now. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. Indeed, it is the hour and time at this point, for it's at that point that Judas Iscariot, indwelt by Satan himself, runs out into the night, kicking off for the soldiers to come arrest Jesus in the garden that very same evening. Jesus goes on to clarify his understanding about any display of his messiahship as being directly connected to his death in what he says next. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Certainly. The world cannot hate his brothers in their spiritual state at that point because they were thinking along the same lines as the rest of the world did at that point. The world would end up hating them later on when they do fully put their faith and trust in their half-brother for their salvation. Now that's huge, isn't it? These guys literally grew up with Jesus, saw everything, and his witness as a child. Combined with everything he said and did during his ministry was enough that when he ascended back to heaven, it was enough to convince them to also put their faith in the guy they grew up with. That he was the second person of the Trinity, the son of God. Jesus is very clear here about his relationship with the world. The world flat out hates him. Why? And the reason we have to ask this question is that there are lots and lots of people walking around this world, even people who claim to be Christians, and they think Jesus is nothing but loving and accepting. He just accepts everyone for who they are. He never judges anyone, and he never expects anyone to change or, God forbid, give up living in a sinful way. They just think Jesus was a chill dude who rocked a sweet beard and a slack beanie and just told everyone to love everyone else and just celebrate everyone's lifestyle, whatever it is, with no expectations or standards. Who would hate that guy? No one. No one would hate that guy. I have no idea where they get that belief. That they then try to force on everyone else, including Bible-believing Christians, and tell them that they're being judgy and not like Jesus when they uphold biblical standards. It's certainly not the Bible where they get this from. Why? Because we read right here that there is a huge reason why the world does hate Jesus, even to this day, why the world hates Jesus, What is it? Because he testifies as a witness to the truth that everything they do and how they process through everything and everything they think and believe is what? Evil. Flat out evil. Now that's very good reasoning to hate someone, isn't it? That's a completely different Jesus than the one who just talks about loving everyone with no standards. If you believe in the biblical Jesus, the world, guess what, hates that Jesus. If you preach the biblical Jesus, the world hates that Jesus. Any other Jesus... Who doesn't point out and uphold the truth uh, and God's standards and who doesn't call anyone and everyone to repentance of their sin in order to receive forgiveness and salvation is a fake Jesus. A fake Jesus. It's a cardboard cutout of Jesus with no backbone or integrity. The real Jesus of truth does love and does call his followers to love, but it's not a blind love. Rather, it's an unconditional love to obey God the Father, to serve one another, and to lead others to put their faith in him too. Lastly, Jesus tells his brothers, verses 8 through 9, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Now, you read further on the next chapter, and we're going to cover this next week, that Jesus goes to the feast. So, what's going on here? The NASB doesn't include this word, while other translations do, but as pointed out by one biblical scholar, in looking at all of the manuscripts, the best way to translate this into English is, I do not yet go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Jesus wasn't intending on giving the impression to his brothers that he wasn't going to attend the feast at all, for that would be breaking the Jewish commandment to do so, and he would forfeit his sinlessness. Instead, he would wait. His brothers wanted him to go with them, presumably, so they could soak up some of the fame of having such a famous brother. But Jesus would not give in to their selfish goal, nor their temptation to him to go to Jerusalem with pomp and circumstance in order to seek fame. We see in the next section that Jesus waits until after his brothers go to Jerusalem, and then he goes secretly. Jesus would end up fulfilling the required offerings and observance of the festival, but he would do so in the way of teaching in the temple. Not by way of a victorious conqueror. Again, it wasn't time for that yet. Either for his revelation to immediate death, nor his return at his second coming when he will enter the city as a victorious conqueror. For now, Jesus is hated by the world. And as we talked about last week, as his followers, don't be surprised that we too will be hated by the world. Don't be surprised by that. And like we see in today's passage, we will be misunderstood and perhaps even hated by our own family members. And that's okay. Because we're not living for their approval. Who are we living for? Jesus' approval. Yes, Jesus loved people. But he did so while still standing for the truth of God's moral standards yes he told the woman accused of sexual sin that he wasn't going to judge her for what she had done but then he also ends that conversation with what go and sin no more as Jesus's followers were called to love others and to call them into repentance and salvation through Jesus and we're also to call what is evil Evil. Jesus certainly did so. He outright said he did, and it was for that reason that the world hated him. We are not called to go with the flow. We're not called to take the easy way out or just promote love without standards. Being loving does not mean remaining silent. Being loving does not mean remaining silent. Being loving does not mean not ruffling any feathers. Being loving does not mean withholding the truth of God's word. We now live in a world where the gospel now is, don't offend anyone. No matter what it is. Don't offend anyone. We see that now. And we're going to continue to see that more and more. The expectation now in observance of our vice president is that if you refer to anyone other than what they've laid out as the correct and only way to refer to them, then you are being offensive and you must suffer as such. I'm obviously not condoning or promoting being needless jerks to people. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the complete Opposite of the gospel of not offending anyone that the world is now promoting. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive because it points out that everyone is a sinner, not acceptable in God's sight on their own and in their own view, and that we need Jesus to save us from ourselves and our sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive because it points out that we need to be changed from who we are when Jesus finds us into more and more, not into the quintessential person, but more and more like Jesus. And the gospel of Jesus Christ very clearly points out that there is good and there is evil and it's what God determines is good and evil, not humanity And the world hates that. Instead of going with the flow and just trying not to offend anyone, we are to take this gospel message of repentance and salvation from sin through Jesus and Jesus alone to a world that flat out hates it. Jesus himself said, you are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket, remaining silent, not wanting to ruffle any feathers, withholding the truth of God's word. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. May we not fear being offensive with sharing the gospel of Jesus in love. May we not fear the hatred of the world for standing up for God's truth in his word in love. Here is a very simple litmus test. As you go through life, and as you see what people post on social media, and as you talk with different people, here is a very simple litmus test. If you haven't been paying attention this whole time, I want you to wake up now. And if you were not writing down anything up to this point, I want you to write this down. If the people you're listening to or the person you are being and the message you're bearing is being embraced and hailed by the world, something is wrong. If the people you're listening to or the person you are being and the message you are bearing is being embraced and hailed by the world, something is wrong you have some wrong understanding of God's word or perhaps a complete wrong understanding of God's word. That's one side of the litmus test. The other side is this. If the people you're listening to, the person you are being, and the message you are being, the message you are bearing, is being railed against as offensive because it agrees with an accurate understanding of God's word and the gospel of Jesus, and it's instead met with hatred by the world, you are being the light of the world. Stick to it. Jesus knew what the truth was and stuck to it, even though he knew that there would be a day, very soon at that point, where he would pay for it. And the world would succeed in torturing and killing him. May we too stand up for the truth of who Jesus actually is. Found only in God's word. And what he actually taught. And what he actually promoted. For we have been given the full armor of God. Remember who we're really fighting against in this world. Remember who we're really fighting against in this world. It's not flesh and blood, it's spiritual darkness. Powerful spiritual darkness. That's who we're really fighting against in this world. As such, this is how we're called to face this world as followers of the one whom the world hated and continues to hate. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil then after the battle you will still be standing firm stand your ground don't go with the flow stand your ground putting on the belt of truth believe it or not there is not this you have your truth and I have my truth there is only one truth stand your ground putting on the belt of truth Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life. And put on the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. That's what's coming at you. Stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet since that's the only hope we have, only foundation we have, is Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's all very plainly and clearly written out in God's Word. May we stand up for the truth in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this honest These honest statements Jesus has with his own brothers. That the world hates him. And Jesus tells his followers and he tells us today too. That if you truly follow me and you truly pick up your cross daily and follow me. And you stand up for the truth of God's word and love. You will be hated too. Let us not be surprised by that. And let us rather put on the full armor of God. To be able to do what you have called us to do as your children and disciples of Jesus. May we not wither. May we not collapse under the weight of of what the world wants us to think and celebrate. But may we stand firm to the truth of God's word in love. Bearing the gospel message that is offensive to this world that hates it. And I pray all these things in Jesus name. Our power, our hope and our salvation. Amen.